exactly like this. I am so excited. My emotions are vibrant. They're out. They're colorful. I love Easter because Easter is the greatest story. It's the greatest story ever told. Ever told. And it's, it's, it's even better because it's true. It's not fictitious. It's not a childhood fantasy. It's not something that we say to our children to lull them to sleep at night, to keep them away from the boogeyman or different fears. No, this story is true, which makes it so incredibly great. We know every good story has a hero. Every good story has a hero triumphing over a villain. Every good story has a hero who, who sees an obstacle, who, who, who is confronted with a conflict, and every good story ends with that hero triumphing over that conflict, having victory over that enemy. And at the end, and Disney has taught us this, we live happily ever, what? After you are trained, the mouse has trained you well, right? Happily ever after. Every good story has a happy ending. Every good story ends with a happily ever after riding off into the sunset. And Easter has the greatest hero. Easter has the God-man. Easter has God's son taking on flesh, and Easter has the greatest villain ever defeated, the greatest conflict ever resolved. Easter has the, that, that just terrible tag team of sin and death as the enemy, and Jesus Christ made them tap out on Easter. Easter is the day that death Died. Easter is the day that we get victory over death. Because another part of, of Easter that makes it great is it's, this is not just Jesus' personal accomplishment. This isn't just Jesus saying, uh, building up his spiritual resume. Hey, look at me. Look what I achieved. Here's my trophy. I rose from the grave. No, 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 no. This is a victory for you. This is a victory for me. Jesus Christ beat your greatest enemy and now allows you to overcome your greatest obstacle, which is what? Which is sin and death. Easter is a great story. And Jesus longs to change your story. Jesus longs to give you that happily ever after. Jesus longs to give you that happy ending. And I want to show you how much emotion is behind Jesus' passion to rewrite your story, to change your story, to give your story a happy ending, to give your story a happily ever after. And I want to show you this in maybe kind of a strange way. In order to show you the passion in Jesus to change your story, we have to go to somewhat of an odd time in Jesus' earthly ministry. A time when it looks like our enemy has won the day. Where it looks like death has won the day. We have to go to a funeral to see Jesus' passion for your story. We have to go to a funeral where, where one of uh, Jesus' closest friends, one is described as being one he, that he loved, we have to go to his funeral. And in this funeral, there's going to be a lot of emotion. 
And Jesus is going to show a lot of emotion. And I'm going to warn you right up front, you may feel uncomfortable with the amount of emotion that Jesus shows. Because he's going to show some emotion that may be strange to you. Now you're already thinking, well, what do you mean, Paul? I, I mean, I already know that funerals have emotion. I, I've been to them. I've attended them. I know the emotions. I know the, the fear. I, I know the anger at times. I know the sadness, the depression, maybe even the guilt. I know that a funeral has deep emotion. Paul, I'm not going to be shocked. But I think you are going to be shocked. Here's why. Because when we go to a funeral, what are we grieving over? What are we sad about? What are we angry about? What do we feel guilty about? About the person who has passed. This is not the case for Jesus' emotions. It's not the emotions necessarily that are going to throw you off. It's where these emotions are directed. Because Jesus is not going to be sad for the one in the coffin. Jesus is going to be sad for the crowd. Jesus' emotions are not going to be directed at the person who's passed, but for those who are left. And I believe these emotions that we're going to see in Jesus, very raw, very real, very messy, are emotions that Jesus Christ is feeling right now. And he's feeling them for you. He's feeling them for us. He's feeling them for you if you're watching us online. Jesus has deep emotion right now on this Easter. Let me show you this in John chapter 11. John chapter 11. We've been kind of journeying through the gospel of John, going through what I like to call a slow walk with Jesus. We've been walking through the gospel of John for a year, and we're just about halfway through. So we are spending our time, and we are enjoying ourselves. But I want to show you, we're just going to jump right into kind of the middle of this kind of funeral grieving for the man named Lazarus. And we're going to see a lot of emotion on this page. And again, Jesus' emotions are going to be directed not at Lazarus, the one who has died, but rather the ones who are there left mourning their brother friend. They are the ones that Jesus is going to be emotional for. And if I could summarize kind of the main idea of our passage today, we call it our big idea for this morning. If you're going to write down one thing, I want you to write this down. If you're going to take one note on your phone, I want you to write this down or type this in if you're going to tweet one thing from the service, you're going to hashtag one thing. Well, that would be a big hashtag. If you're going to get creative with your hashtags, this is the one thing I want you to hashtag for the service. Our big idea is this. Jesus weeps to write your story. Jesus weeps. There's that emotion I've been talking about. Jesus weeps for what? For you, for me, for us. Jesus weeps to write our story to move it to a happy ending, to take it to a happily ever after. All right, let's just jump in to the emotion. John chapter 11, we're in verse 28. It says this, And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary. Now, like I said, we're in the middle of the story here. If you weren't with us last week, you don't realize the conversation that's happening right now. Someone is going to Mary. Who is that someone? In our verse, it only says she. We know from last week, this is Martha. Martha came up to Jesus, and her brother had just died, where he had been dead for four days. And she runs up to Jesus, and she's disappointed in Jesus. She gets to Jesus, and she tells him, if you would have been here, Jesus, my brother wouldn't be dead. I thought he was somebody that you loved. I know that you can heal the sick. Jesus, you didn't show up on time. Jesus, you're late. 
You're four days late. Even on a sundial, I can tell you're late. You're late, Jesus. And she gives him this disappointment. And Jesus is not disrespected by this. Jesus is not disrespected by this disappointment. Rather, what does he do? He runs to Martha. He comes to her and he tells her, Martha, I can give you hope. And probably the greatest verse in John chapter 11, Jesus says this to Martha, who is mourning, who's disappointed that Jesus didn't come in time. Jesus runs to her emotionally as she's in her mourning, and he says this in John chapter 11, verse 25. He says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What just happened right there? Jesus just changed Martha's story. He said, I know it looks like death is one. I know it looks like the story is over. I know things look bleak. I know things look dark. But let me tell you, in me, the shades of today change from darkness to light. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. What is he saying there? Martha, you can have an afterlife. But then he gives her more than that. Let's not just think about the future. Let's think about the present. He says, if you live and believe, you will never die. Jesus is saying, I can give you a life right now that can pass you through death, and you will be alive forever. Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? And she says, yes, Lord, I believe. Her story changes. Right now, Martha has been given hope. Her brother's still dead. She's still disappointed he wasn't healed. But she believes now in Jesus, and she has hope. So what do you think Martha told Mary? She's running now, running to her sister who is grieving. I have to imagine that Martha is saying, Mary, you're not going to believe this. I know things are bad. I know today is really a bummer. I know we've gone through tissue after tissue after tissue after tissue. I know we've heard people comforting us over and over again. But Jesus said some words to me you're not going to believe. Jesus said he is the resurrection and the life. That he could change our story. He could give us a happily ever after. That even though today is dark, tomorrow is going to be bright. And tomorrow is going to be bright forever. Mary, you got to talk to Jesus. I don't know what she said. But I have to imagine it was something like that. Whatever she said, Mary's now got to go see Jesus. She breaks custom. A mourning family in the first century world was supposed to stay at home for seven days and mourn. We're only at day four. And whatever Martha says to Mary moves Mary from the house to run at Jesus. And we are going to get just an emotional mess when these two people meet. And Mary's the first one to show that emotion. All right, let's look at Mary's encounter with Jesus. We're on verse 29. Or sorry, verse 28. Mary saying in private, the teacher is here. He is calling for you. This is Martha speaking to Mary. And when she heard it, she rose quickly, and she went to him. It's time to go. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep. Now think what we have here. We have Mary. Of course she is distraught. Of course she is mourning. 
This is setting up to be a very emotional scene because now it's not a private meeting anymore. Now all of these fellow mourners, these people that have come to grieve, these friends and family members who are brokenhearted with her, say, we can't let her grieve alone. Let's go with her. So now we have this crowd of people. And they're running towards Jesus. And look at the scene that unfolds before us. Verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. What is going on? This is a mess. I mean, there's emotion everywhere. And it's understandable. She's grieving. She's in sorrow. She first falls at Jesus' feet. Now, her sister, we saw this last week, Martha gives us a lot more words. Mary gives us a lot more emotion. She only gets one sentence out. And at first, what does she do? She falls on her face. Probably an act of worship here. She calls to Jesus, Lord. But then she has this mixture of emotion. She has respect for Jesus, but then she expresses her disappointment in Jesus. If you would have been here, things could have been better. You're the healer of the sick. You love my brother, and yet he died. Do you see that frustration? Just the mixture of emotion come out. And then it bursts forth. It says that she weeps and those with her begin to weep. And this is just, this is not just some crying. This word here is just a boisterous, loud, a good English word would be wailing. She is wailing right now. And maybe you've known that before. You've known that emotion in your grief. Right? There are times that as we're grieving, we, we, have our, we have our balance, if you will. We're walking through things in, 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 in a patient, kind of balanced way. But then there's those moments that we just get blindsided by our grief. Right? Blindsided by our pain. Maybe it's the, it's the first time you, you see that lifeless loved one in the coffin. Maybe you had a viewing Right? And it's the flood of emotion that, that comes. Maybe you've accepted the, re, the, the new reality you have to live in, but the moment you see him, the moment you see him, something happens, and there's no more calm, cool, and collective. There's no more quiet grieving. You just burst forth, and you just wail. I know that I have cried at times so much that, that I, I've like dehydrated myself, that, that I've, I've lost my wind, I've lost my breath, I've gotten lightheaded before I remember burying a friend's mother. And as we were walking from the chapel to the graveside, we were following her mom's coffin. It was being pulled by this horse-drawn carriage. And as we were walking from the chapel to the graveside, it wasn't long, but it felt really long. And every step, I mean, she was just wailing. She was Weak. There were times I felt like I had to hold her up in order for us to put one foot in front of the other. That's what's happening here. Do you see the emotion here? She is broken. And here's what's going to shock you. How Jesus responds. I said the big idea was Jesus weeps to write your story. Jesus is going to get emotional. But the first emotion he does not, or first emotion he has is not sadness, it's something else. Now think about for yourself, if you were to watch a friend or a family member, and there at the moment, they are just wailing before the Lord. They are just wailing in grief. They are broken. 
what would you feel? Empathy, right? You'd want to be near them, close to them. Maybe not give them any words, but just get next to them, put an arm around them. And just tell them that you love them. Do, Do something like that. You would feel empathy. You would feel sadness. You would feel grief. What does Jesus feel? Jesus feels anger. Anger? That seems inappropriate. That seems borderline rude. Who gets angry at a funeral? And who gets angry at the person crying at a funeral? What is going on here with Jesus? But like I said, Jesus' emotions are strong here. They're deep here. And man, do they surprise us here. Look at the next verse, how Jesus responds. We're in verse 30. I'm only halfway through it. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with him also weeping, it says Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Two descriptions, deeply moved, greatly troubled. Let's take that second one. Let's take the second one first. Greatly troubled. What is he talking about here? Jesus is upset. There's like a storm inside of him. That's the kind of imagery here. John uses this term in two other very strongly emotionally charged passages. In John chapter 12 and in John chapter 13, just the next chapter and then the following chapter. In chapter 12, he uses this this term, Jesus greatly troubled, when Jesus is thinking about his crucifixion. When he's thinking about his future death, it says that Jesus is greatly troubled. In John chapter 13, when he thinks about the betrayal of one of his closest disciples, of Judas, it says he is troubled. Right there, Jesus is in just a fury of emotions. Things are unsettled here. But it's that first descriptor. It says he is deeply moved. What does that mean? Let me just be honest with you. This English translation is a PG version of what that word really means. It doesn't go far enough. You read that and you think to yourself, okay, Jesus is distraught. No, he's indignant. Deeply moved, if we really dive into what that word means, it's used in other literature in Greek in the first century world. And sometimes it's used to describe a horse. Of when a horse blows air out of its nostrils and kind of moves its head. You know what I'm talking about? When it's applied to people, it always has the idea of of indignation, moral disgust. This is how it's used in the rest of the Gospels. This is not a tame word. Think of it like this. Have you ever been so mad, so mad that you close your mouth and you blow air out of your nose? You just, right? So angry, right? You ever seen your dad that angry? Right? When dad's not talking, you better start running, right? That's when you're in real trouble. That's like DEFCOM 4, right? When dad's so mad, he's so red, the only thing screaming is the vein on his forehead, right? It's time to move. That is a good description of what's going on here with Jesus. Jesus closing his mouth and he is blowing out of his nose. He is angry. What? Jesus, that's kind of rude. Don't you think? Who invited Jesus to this funeral? Who gets angry when people cry? Why is Jesus angry? Why is he deeply moved? Well, maybe he's angry. He's just, he's just angry because Lazarus is dead. Maybe that's what it is. No, that doesn't work. 
I'd say at first glance, that's how I would read it. At first glance, that's what I would think of. If we were angry at a funeral, that's what probably we would be about. We're, we're just angry. We're just, we're just angry that we didn't get that last conversation with a friend. We didn't get that last, hey man, I'll love you. But that doesn't work with John chapter 11. Jesus isn't angry about the death of Lazarus. How do we know that? We already know his plan. He told us in John chapter 11, verse 11, what he was already going to do. He told his disciples in John 11, 11, he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, Jesus speaking of his death, but I go to awaken him. Jesus has already revealed the plan. I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows how the day is going to end, so why is he mad? He already knows what he's going to do. He's already told his disciples what he's going to do. Is he just being theatrical? Why is he angry if he's already going to solve the problem? Well, look at when he's angry. Jesus found out that Lazarus was dead in verse 17, and he wasn't angry there. What does Jesus see that makes him angry, that makes him emotional? Look at verse 33 again. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with him also weeping, then Jesus was deeply moved. What is he mad at? He's not mad at death. He's mad at despair. He's watching these people mourn without hope. He's watching these people weep and wail in such a fashion that they believe sin and death as one. They don't have hope like Martha had. They're not holding on to that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. That if anybody believes in him, though he died, yet shall he live. That those who live and believe will never die. They don't know this. This is why they're broken. And Jesus sees hope that they don't have, and it hurts him. He is hurt by it. He is moved by it. And he is angry about it. Now, that may feel weird. Like, this seems like an odd conflict. You can't have these two emotions. How can you be angry with somebody and love somebody at the same time? If you don't know that dilemma, let me give you a good way to solve it. Have kids. Right? I got four of them. I promise you, I'm angry at least one of them. At least every time of the day. Right? But Jesus being highly emotional, highly loving, highly compassionate, is also highly angry at times. We see this. Let me show you this mixture of emotion in Jesus and probably one of the most passionate pleas of Jesus about the judgment of God upon the religious leaders. It's in Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 1, all the way down to verse 36, Jesus is just letting them have it. Over and over again, he's saying, woe to you, woe to you. What does that mean? He's not telling the horses to come in. He's not saying woe in that way. He's pronouncing judgment. Woe to you, judgment is coming. But at the very end of this giant passage about judgment, Jesus is broken, right? Look at his words. This is in verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's not talking about just the city. He's talking about the religious leaders in that city. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wing, but you are not willing. Jesus is brokenhearted. He's angry and grieving at the same time. This is why Jesus is deeply moved. He can't handle their stories not having a happy ending. 
he weeps to write their story. Jesus moves from anger then to sadness. Let me show you this as we continue on in John 11, verse 34. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Shortest verses in the Bible. Shortest verse in the Bible right here, verse 35. Jesus wept. Why is he weeping? Why does he move from anger to sadness? Why is he crying? Again, he's not crying because of Lazarus. He knows the plan. He knows what he's going to do. And he knows Lazarus is not the one that needs rescue. Lazarus is not in trouble. If John chapter 11, verse 25, what Jesus already said to Martha is true, Lazarus is good. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, if those who believe in him, even though they die, yet shall they live, and those who live and believe in him will never die, if that's true, is Lazarus in trouble? No, he's good. He's fine. He's okay. Jesus is not weeping for Lazarus. He's weeping for his friends and family members grieving without hope. He's not weeping for the guy in the coffin. He's weeping for the crowd. There's only one other time in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Only one other time in the Gospels it says that term, weep, for Jesus. One other time. And do you know what Jesus weeps for in that passage? The same exact thing he's weeping for now. This is in Luke chapter 19. Let me show you this. The only other time in the Gospels. Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem. People are starting to worship him, and the Pharisees say, you got to stop this. This isn't work. The religious leaders are saying, keep this crowd silent. And Jesus is like, no, I deserve to be worshipped. And Jesus is brokenhearted at the disbelief, the unbelief of these religious leaders. And look what Jesus says in verse 41 in response to them. And when he had drawn near and he saw the city, here's that word, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear down to the ground you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. I was coming to see you. God, man, was coming to see you. You had a chance to worship, but you missed it. And Jesus does what? He weeps over this moment. Now, it's interesting. In John 11, Jesus uses, or sorry, John uses a different word to describe Jesus' tears. Mary and the crowd, it's the wailing idea, this demonstrative outward expression of grief. But when Jesus weeps in John eleven thirty five, 35, it's a different word. The word is more reserved. It's more controlled. It's kind of a quiet weeping, a quiet mourning. It's still grief. It's still pain. But it's not out of control like Mary and the mourners. Jesus gets angry. Jesus gets sad. And watch this. He'll get angry again. That same word. You see how John is trying to highlight the emotions of Jesus at this funeral. Look back at John chapter 11. John chapter 11, we're in verse 36. This is when the crowds think they've figured it out. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. They think, oh, he's weeping for Lazarus. They don't know that he's not. He's weeping for them. Then they say these words. But some of them said, could not he 
who opened the eyes of the blind. Man also have kept this man from dying. What's happening here? They question Jesus. We've already seen this before. We saw this with Mary and Martha. The most recent one with Mary. If you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Couldn't he keep this man from dying? What are they expressing? They don't understand who Jesus is. And what's Jesus' response? Right after that statement and question of unbelief, what's the response? How does Jesus respond in that moment? It's the anger again. Look at verse 38. Then, after that question came, deeply moved, indignant, angry, closing your mouth, blowing out air from the nose, he was deeply moved again. And he came to the tomb, and it was a cave, and a stone laid against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Now notice here, just in case you're not convinced that Jesus' primary concern is not Lazarus, but the crowd, we're going to see twice now demonstrated that Jesus' main concern is the mourners, not the one they're mourning for. It's those grieving, and not the one they're grieving for. It's the crowd and not the man in the coffin. Jesus weeps to write their story. Their story. Look how Jesus shows this. He's confronted with this idea of, hey, don't open the tomb. That's a bad idea. Jesus takes control of the moment. Verse 40. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? What's Jesus about right now? Is Jesus here to rescue Lazarus? No. Jesus is about to show off. Right? He just told us. That was the plan for the very beginning in chapter, or sorry, verse 4 of John 11. He said, this is going to happen for the glory of God. He's saying to Martha, Martha, you need to watch. Because you're about to see the glory of God. This is for you and not your brother. Your brother's fine. Trust me, he's going to be depressed when he comes back. Because what he's seen is much better than this. Don't be mad when he frowns when he sees your face. But you need to see the glory of God, Martha. And another time, again, that Jesus shows his main point of emphasis and concern is not Lazarus, but the crowd. Jesus prays this really strange prayer. Look at what Jesus prays. Verse 41, So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe you sent me. What a weird prayer. When you pray, what do you do? You ask for stuff, right? Father, help me with this. God, help me with this. God, can you do this? Father, please step in. What's going on here? There's no questions here. Jesus just starts with, thank you, God. Thank you, Father. We've had a plan for a while. I know you hear me. We're going to work this thing out. Just wait and see. There's no ask. There's just a thank you. And then what does he say? Hey, by the way, I'm praying this not, not for you, not really for me, for them. Can you imagine me coming on stage and doing that? All right, church family, let's pray. Father, I'm not here to ask anything, just to say thank you. And I'm not really talking right now for you or me. I'm talking for them. Does that not sound weird? Does that not sound strange? But what is Jesus trying to show them? This is for you guys. 
This is for you. My primary concern is you. This is why I'm angry. This is why I'm sad. This is why I'm angry again. Is because I want to write your story so bad. And I want you to see that I'm qualified to be the author of your story. That I'm qualified. Let me show you. Let me show you that I am the resurrection and the life. And I have power over death. Let me show you. And Jesus shows up. Jesus shows out. And God is glorified. Look at verse 34. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. What is Jesus doing here? Is this the climax of the story? Is this the best part of the story? No. This is the appetizer. This is the appetizer. You ever go to dinner, take your wife out, a nice dinner, find a babysitter who is crazy enough to take your four crazy kids, right? That victim, I mean servant, right? You go out to dinner, you got to get an appetizer. You ask the waiter, hey man, what's the best appetizer you have? Okay, great, we'll have that. Now, if that dish is laid before you, and it tastes gross, how do you feel about the chef? How, how eager are you to enjoy the main course if the appetizer stinks? You're thinking, hey, babe, you want to go to In-N-Out? Let's go to Old Reliable, right? But if you order that appetizer, you eat it, and you are satisfied. I mean, it is delicious. Those are the best Brussels sprouts ever. I mean, who can make Brussels sprouts taste good? But this man made Brussels sprouts taste good. If he can make Brussels sprouts taste good, what can he do with a ribeye? Right? Now you're eager. Now you're excited. And now everybody in here is hungry. Right? But you're excited to enjoy the main course. This is exactly what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, this is an appetizer. First of all, Lazarus was not in any danger. He's going to come back, but he's going to die again. But that's just an appetizer. That's just a teaser of what I can do. Because I am the resurrection and the life. And I cannot just resuscitate the dead. I can give the, the living life, and they will live forever. And I can resurrect the dead and give them a life that lasts forever. Lazarus would die again, but Jesus can give you a life in which you will never die. And Jesus says, just to show you that I'm the chef that can serve up that main dish, let me give you an appetizer. Let me show you Lazarus. Jesus longed and weeps to write your story. He is in agony over it. Right now, I think Jesus has the same emotions in John 11. He has the same emotions today. I think Jesus is in heaven right now, the right hand of the Father, and he's weeping. Why? Because there are so many who don't have hope. So many, he longs to change their story. He weeps to rewrite their story. He weeps to give us a happy ending. He weeps to give us that happily ever after. It is agony for him. It is longing for him. It is almost anger for him. It is so hard to watch his creation face impending judgment. And the gap of time before that day comes, he is longing and he is weeping. He made you. He knows you. 
all those quirky parts of your personality, that awkward grin when you smile, your strange humor. He knows all of that. He is intimately involved with your creation. It says that he knitted you together in your mother's womb. He knows you, and he knows you more intimately than any spouse will ever know. He loves you, and he cares about you. You're his creation, and he sees you on the train tracks, and he sees the train coming, and he is compelled to say, no, not my son, not my daughter, not you. This is not how your story is ending. And he runs, and he weeps. He's not a spectator standing by to tragedy. What does he do? He takes on your tragedy. He runs at the wrath of God for you. And he says, that's not how your story is ending. I made you, and I love you, and I care about you, and I long for you, and I'm angry, angry that you don't see the hope that I can provide for you. I see it coming, and I don't want it for you. This is not how your story should end. This is the same passion that drives our Savior to his crucifixion that was not his burden to bear. He shouldn't have been on those tracks. But he stood there. He stood there, and he took that blow. And he rose again from the grave. And he says, this is how the story ends. As we were talking about this passage as pastors, and we meet together and we kind of talk about the passage and what we're seeing in the passage, it was funny because in that meeting, it just took this turn. You know, we're just not just reading this kind of sterile manuscript this ancient document, finding the different nuances and details. No, it's a living document that talks about the most important things of our reality. And that, and that, that meeting took this, this, this turn. One of the pastors, as we're talking about this passage, said this phrase, and it struck me, and I think it struck everybody else in the room, is he said that we grieve for the living. What an interesting way to put that. Isn't it? But does it not match what Jesus is doing here? He weeps to write your story. He grieves for the living. Why? Because they don't have hope. And I want you to know, if you're a guest here, if this is your first time with us, or maybe you've been coming for a while, maybe you just checked us out because a friend invited you, I want you to know that we are crazy in love with you even though maybe we've never even met you or we don't know your name. I'll just be absolutely upfront, right at the right at the start. We love you. We care about you a ton. A ton. We grieve for you. We love you. We long to see you know the hope that we have. And whether you believe in that yet or not, please see. I think you'll see. We're not trying to be Annoying, I think it's admirable because we love you. We care about you. And we can't stand to think of your eternity without God. We can't stand to think of you not having a happily ever after. And again, I don't know where you are on your spiritual journey. I don't know if today's just the day you came back to church. 
Or maybe today was the day, well, I got to get my Christmas, I got to get my Easter, and I'm good. I don't know if you came just because mom asked you to come. Whatever it is. I know this. I went to church as a kid. Didn't like church. Left church. But then I came back to church. And you know why I came back to church? Because I realized there was this man who was believing this book, and he sounded like he had a happily ever after that I wanted. And I started to read this book, and I started to listen to the sermons, and I realized this. At that moment, I felt like this feels like it's too good to be true. But then I realized this. But this is too good not to look into. It may feel like it's too good to be true, but I'm friend, it is too good not to look into. Because if all of this is true, you get a happy ever after. You get a happy ending. I get a happy ending. So this is what I want to ask you to do. Give me three weeks. That's three weeks. That's all I'm asking. Three Sundays. Three Sundays. There's a couple hours. Give me three Sundays. Not four. Give me three. Over the next three weeks as a church, we're going to walk through the big story of the Bible. The big story of this whole book. Bring a lunch. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to walk through the three big movements of this book right here. And this big story is where your story finds its happily ever after. And I'm asking you, just give me three Sundays. Three Sundays. If after three, you say, I'm out. Okay. Give me three Sundays to unpack the storyline of the Bible. Three simple movements, and I think you'll see this is your story. This is my story. This is our story. It's the story that gives us unity, purpose, and hope. And it's where we find our happily ever after. Now, maybe you're here and you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And you've been following for a long time. And you identify with Jesus' emotions here. You identify with the sadness. You identify even with the anger. You identify with the passion. You identify that you weep to see your friends and family's story change. I know that's you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ here at Valley Bible Church, I know that's you. I know you want to see the stories around you change, but sometimes it's not about the want to, it's about the how to. Paul, how do I do that? How do I unpack this whole thing? Give me three Sundays. I think what you see is three big movements of God. Then we're going to take those three Sundays and we're going to put it in a pocket-sized kind of format so when the moment comes, you can share the hope of Easter. You can share the hope of a happily ever after. I'm excited about the next three weeks here at our church. And I invite you to join us in any format, whether online or in person. We'd love to have you with us. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you. Oh, Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Oh, what a wonderful little appetizer today. To see a man resurrected from the grave. Wow, that's incredible. But that's just the appetizer. The main dish is yet to be served. And you have given us a taste of that. 
You've given us a taste of eternal life. You give us life now if we believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. We can have eternal life, a present hope right now that will pass us through any time of pain, any season of suffering, any time of trial. We can move past that because we know we have a life that will never be taken from us. And Father, we know that you weep. Christ, we know that you weep to write the stories of every single person in this room, every single person viewing us online. You weep for them. And Father, we weep for them. We weep that they would know you. We cannot force anything on anybody. We don't want anybody to believe what we believe simply because we believe it. But Father, if I'm honest, I long and I weep and I grieve for the living. Oh, that they may know you. Father, be with us as a church to always show how persuasive this story is, convincing this story is, true this story is, hopeful this story is. We will not be let down if you're the author of our story. Father, we thank you for Resurrection Sunday. We thank you that you, Christ, are alive. What a wonderful, wonderful day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.